When did you realize you were a storyteller? Um, um, when did I realize I was a storyteller? Probably in high school. Um, I think my storytelling comes from uh, two different places. Um, so it comes from obviously family and I come from a tradition of uh, uh, trash talking, joke telling, old Jewish you know, crazy, like my grandpa, my grandma just sitting around the table just telling stories. Um, and so there's that side of me. Um, and then the other side of me is uh, uh, growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, um, like around a lot of rappers and poets and wannabe comedians. And like, you know, I grew up in DC and so like every uh, white Jewish boy of my generation, I wanted to be a rapper and uh, quickly realized I couldn't rap too good. So then I got into writing and poetry and storytelling. And um, from there, it was kind of merging these worlds and finding like everyone, you got to find your voice and uh, just kind of bringing it all together. Did you get any pressure from family or peers? do something else? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, my family, my mom still is like, you make money on this? Um, and I'm like, well, not really, but a little bit, uh, you know, enough to pay the bills. So I, I used to, uh, I was gonna be a teacher. I was gonna be, I worked in schools for a long time with different nonprofit organizations. And so, I, you know, my, uh, my folks, they, you know, they, you know, they want you to have health care and, you know, they want you to, you know, be okay and pay the rent and all those things. And so far, I've been able to do that most months um, through my art. Um, and but no, they also, for the most part, I'm blessed that my parents and my family um, are mostly pretty supportive and they understand it's like you got to do what calls you. You got to do what makes sense. And um, mostly my mom's like, I don't think your stuff is very funny, um, but you know, nice try and better luck next time. <laughs> so they're supportive. What I'm saying is my mom's supportive in theory, but she's like, well, I don't think it's that good, but I'm glad other people like it, son. Keep doing what you do. In some ways, do you think that's almost helpful? Because what if you had something where it was a pat on the back and everything you do is amazing? And then it wouldn't oh, push yeah. you. Oh, no, yeah. I, no. I, uh, my family and my peers and my people, we don't have a lot of uh, false praise. Uh, and it's good. As a writer, I need, I need the honest feedback. Um, and my wife, oh, she's the toughest critic. And that's what I'm like, like, give me to me straight, no chaser. Um, and then it's also <laughs> good to have, as a writer, and I have this with Yvonne in the writer's room. It's also important to have those times where you, where I can say, I want to show you a draft and I don't want all the feedback just yet. I just want to show it to you and like, don't like tear me down just yet. Just like, tell me a, like three things. Is there anything in here worth keeping? And like, we'll go off that. So I think it's important to have both the like harsh, feedback, but also the like safe spaces. I'm trying some new stuff out. What do you think? So I get that definitely at home and at work. Do you not like to have yes people around you? 
I mean, well, you know, I like to have some people who, you know, are support. You know, it's good that, like I said, you need both. You got to have the people who are supportive all the time, who are just like, let's try it. Um, but I don't know. I don't really have yes people around me. So I'll let you know when, when I find those people. When, when I get an assistant and a manager and my agents and, and I have yes people, I'll come back and let you know. I haven't, I haven't got there yet. Um, and I think that's okay. What's the most important part of the writing process for you? I don't know what the most important part of the writing process is, but I know that the, the thing that I've learned over the last couple of years that's been the most helpful and the most, for me, why I transitioned from more solo performance and solo writing work to screenwriting and being part of a writer's room is for me, the writing is in, it's not an individual process, actually. It is, for me, I tried to do the thing where you sit at the desk by yourself and write a book, write the novel, write the, like, by, and that's just not me. I couldn't do it. And so for me, I write my first drafts um, uh, with people, um, or I get the ideas talking with people, uh, just, just what do you think about this? And it's the writing happens usually before I'm even writing. Um, the writing is in conversation. The writing is trying stuff out, trying ideas, questions. I ask a lot of questions. And then, and then the actual writing for me is, I always, I'm still pen and paper. I'm still, like, I don't start on final draft. Uh, I don't start on the computer because I just, the internet kills me. And even, not even the internet, just the screen. There's something about the pressure of the screen. And so I'm still, it, it takes longer because I have to freaking transcribe everything. But I get better, I get sooner to the actually what I want. Um, so I always start pen and paper and it allows me to uh, get free. And it, really what it does is it removes the editor in my head while I'm writing. If I'm on the screen, I'm like editing while I write. If I'm write, just writing freehand, I get a little more. That's usually where the good shit comes out. Well, you do. Usually. And you, and you do something called why I write, right? You stand up and, and do like open mic, different things and, and... Yeah, so I, as a writer, I got my start at doing performance poetry and spoken word. And then I moved, I did a little bit of stand up. Um, and then I moved into um, live storytelling in this uh, show on NPR called Snap Judgment. Um, and so I did that for a while. And most of that is you know, autobiographical or semi-autobiographical or supposedly autobiographical. But at a certain point I got to, you know, I, I have stories. I, I can tell you stories about my life and that's great. And I love to do that. But there's other stories as a writer I want to tell other than my own freaking life. And there's my whole community and my neighbors and my friends and my family. And I want to do more than just me on a microphone. And so that's, um, you know, Yvonne and I knew each other just from Oakland. And actually, you know, we met playing soccer. Um, like this is like, we didn't, 
start just working together. We were friends, homies playing uh, in a, a socialist soccer club in Oakland called Left Wing Football Club. And so like we just, I don't even remember how we got started. Oh, I, I just wanted to make some videos. It was, you know, it was early 2010 or something. It's like, you know, internet videos, blogs, vlogs, all these things. And I was like, I want to do something. You're the, you're the filmmaker in our crew. Let's do something. And I think some of those still exist on YouTube. They're terrible. They're freaking off. I mean, the cinematography is amazing, but I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to write for film, but it's just experimenting. It's trying stuff out and then little from little, you know, going there to making larger videos, having slightly larger budgets, and then going from there to making the web series. So why do you write? Why do I write? Oh, you're asking the big questions. Um, I write because um, I think otherwise I would go crazy um, or crazier than I already am. Um, it's a good crazy though, right? Yeah, it's a good crazy, mostly. I mean, writing is a beautiful and also masochistic sport that like the right, like I love writing, but it's, it's, the, the, let's talk about the good stuff. The, the create, I mean, I write because I got something to say. I write because there are things that uh, I want to see that are different in the world. There's things, there's characters, there's people that I know and love whose stories deserve to be told, whose aren't told in the mainstream media or Hollywood or just even the local press is like, whose story is told, how is it told, who are the heroes and sheroes, who are the villains, like, I just don't feel, I just, I want to complicate the narrative. I want to show a different perspective. And I also want to have some fun. And so for me, writing is the way to be both as serious or as ridiculous as I am on a given day. And I want to show the breadth of who we are um, as people, and I want to show, um, you know, there's a the, a quote by one of my my heroes, Bertolt Brecht, old German socialist, playwright, and poet, and he said, "Art is not a mirror to hold up to society, but a hammer with which to shape it." And so, for me, writing, filmmaking, all these things are a way to not just uh, provoke people's ideas, but to show a different idea of what's possible. And in this country where we're so isolated, we're so individualistic, we're so um, divided and put up against each other and where all the struggles of, you know, American uh, government, political corruption, racism, go down the list. Uh, let's use art to show something different and not to ignore the pain but to name the reality of this these are the problems that are affecting people's daily lives but what could it look like if it was something a little different and so art and writing is about that radical imagination have you ever written something whether it's performance or or a screenplay that it bothered someone and they were very angry about it 
And how oh, does hell you, yeah. And how does that make you feel? Because now you're... Feels like I'm doing my job. Um, yeah, the, 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 one of the main, uh, not criteria, one of the main signs of feedback that I'm doing my job right is the level of uh, angry emails that I get. Um, if, if, uh, if I'm not pissing someone off, I'm not doing my job as a writer. If I'm not making you, if I'm not challenging you, um, if I'm, you know, I want my uh, art to uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And so if uh, people in power are, uh, you know, tapping me on my back, if I just have yes men, as you said, just like, oh, that's good, then I could just be making commercials for Coca-Cola, but that's not what I want to be doing. Um, so... Yeah, there are times I'm, a, I'm a, a Jewish writer who writes about Israel and Palestine sometimes. That can be a little controversial. I'm a, I'm a white guy who talks about race and white privilege. Yeah, that's sometimes people have some feelings about that. I work with a multiracial team of writers in Oakland. Even in the writer's room, we challenge each other. We, sometimes we don't, we, we're not sure if they're saying what they want to say, am I speaking on behalf of someone else? Are you saying what um, is a real representation or is that a stereotype? And so the first thing I feel like is in the writer's room is even before the writer's room, am I challenging myself? And so if I'm not challenged or if I'm not surprised or if I'm not in a new place by the end of the writing that I was at the start, then I haven't done my own job to myself. And so I feel like that's, yeah, you gotta, gotta end somewhere new. Has anyone ever said, can you tone it down? And what is your response to that? Um, you know that uh, great classic movie, uh, This Is Spinal Tap? <laughs> yeah. Turn it to 11. <laughs> no, we turn it up. We don't have time to tone it down. There's too much false politeness. Um, there's too much trying to make everyone. Um, f it's not that I want to stir controversy for the sake of controversy. It's not, I don't, you know, I don't want just to offend you or upset you for the sake of a reaction. The, the idea is, can we look at some new perspectives? The idea is, um, no matter where you stand, we all know there's some things that are, um, you know, uh, wiped between the rug, not wiped, wiped under the rug. There are some things that are not talked about that need to get talked about. And um, if art and film and writing isn't the place, then where is the place to do that? What takes you out of a story and ruins it for you? I think that when you start to hear a false voice, um, like when, and this is what I have to guard myself against as a writer myself, is when you can hear the character isn't sounding like the character anymore, but sounds like, oh, this is the writer inserting what they want you, like, just in case you didn't know what I was trying to say, when they start to beat you over the head with it, with the message, 
with the plot, with the, um, you know, our job is to show, not tell. When, when someone starts telling me, that's when I'm like, you know, the curtain is revealed and I, I get out of the story and I'm like, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. And I don't want to know what you're trying to do. I just want to feel it. I just want to experience it. Do you think voices are silenced today as they were maybe back in the 40s? The storytelling is too scary for certain people? What do you mean by that? Like whose voices? Artists. Now that everybody has a camera, everybody can be the storyteller and put their ideas out there. Do you think it's scarier for the powers that be? You're trying to challenge, trying to show people yeah. something, whether they're going to agree with you or not, whether they're going to be angry at you. Um, you think it's a dangerous time again? I think, is it a dangerous time to be an artist and a storyteller? Is it more dangerous than the 40s and 50s? Um, I mean, my, my grandmother was a communist in the McCarthy era. And her friends were, she was in jail for two years. Um, I don't think it's a more dangerous time for writers than the 40s and 50s in the US. What I do think is that there's more access because people have means of production. It's been a little more democratized. People can get out their own stories. People can have their um, you know, web series, people can have their blogs, people can have, but I think the hard part that hasn't changed is less about the government suppression um, and censorship and more it's about media distribution and control. And so I think we have way more choices, obviously. We have Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, we, there's a lot more shows, there's a lot more media, there's social media, but I still think that in terms of the main stories that get seen and replayed and the big corporate advertising that gets in, I think we still have such a limited range of, of stories, of issues, of narratives that is widened up a little bit in the last 5, 10, 15 years. And I think you have to credit especially um, black writers and filmmakers who have really pushed that open in Hollywood and beyond, uh, and women and queer writers and filmmakers who have really busted the door open. And I don't, I don't know if the door is busted open. I think it's like, it's at least cracked. And now it's like, let's get in as many people as we can that haven't been able to get in. And so I think it's opening, but I think there is, anytime you have progress, you have pushback. And so we see that politically. Um, with our last president to our current president about progress and pushback. But I think you also, any type of progress that we have had in terms of media representation, storytelling, um, politically and culturally diverse perspectives, I think it's important to know that uh, and to be wary, especially with uh, Republican governments, uh, that repression can come quick and they do come for the poets and the artists and the filmmakers and the storytellers like that is one of the first categories on the list because you have to you you want to shut down any dissent so for me it's 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 interesting we live in interesting beautiful 
absurd times. Did you meet your grandmother? You, you knew her? Yeah, my grandma uh, helped raise me. She, she was born, she was in, these, uh, in LA. Um, her name was Dorothy Healy, and she lived in South Central from the 30s till 1982 when she moved to DC to help raise me and my brother. And so my grandma is my, my hero and my shiro, my motivation. Um, and, and she, I just watched a video clip of her actually and she talked about, she was joking. Um, she was talking to some activists from the 60s, um, like some flower child, you know, hippie generation up in Berkeley. And she was saying to them, she was like, you guys think you have a counterculture? We had a counterculture. We had music, we had writers, we had, you know, we had Paul Robeson, we had, uh, you know, Diego Rivera murals. We had like, we had a culture, the culture and the politics were together. We had comedians, we, you know? And so for me, it was interesting because we think about the 60s as like the renaissance of, of uh, cultural expression. It's like mythologized the 60s music and it's beautiful, but I think it was interesting for me to watch my very serious political activist grandma. Uh, she, she understood the importance of culture. And so for me, as a filmmaker, as a writer, um, I'm a cultural worker and, you know, it's in, the, it's in the tradition. When you started writing The North Pole season one, did you see it as a movie or a web series? We saw it as a web series. Yeah, we wrote it knowing we would do these episodic, um, you know, eight to ten minute episodes um, because we knew this was a way we could get it out. This was a way that um, we could have creative control. Um, but more importantly, you know, we're mid-level um, writers and filmmakers in Oakland. We're not, you know, we're not in the heart of um, Hollywood industry. No one was knocking on our doors five years ago. We're trying to break, break in. We're trying to get these stories out there. And so web series is a way to, to to start. And so we started episodically and we did the first season and it did um, well enough that we were able to do a second. And so that's that's the new one, the season two that um, we're excited to see. And when we, we had our premiere in Oakland and we it's on the big screen, I think it works. And a lot of people told us this could be a movie, like it works narratively as a feature. And so for us, that's a beautiful thing because um, we want it to work. Each episode can live on its own, but also there is a season arc that feels um, it feels like a movie. And so but for it, yeah, we started as a web series. Did anyone tell you in the beginning, maybe you should tone it down, don't have it be so political? Or did they say maybe you should turn up the volume, up the ante a little bit? Honestly, people did. Uh, I don't think people know, knew what the fuck to tell us when we were starting. Um, I don't think people knew what we were doing. People um, were excited and, you know, web series can mean anything and everything under the sun. So some people didn't know, is this going to be like a short little thing and then we we're like, no, this is, we want this to have serious production value, serious writing content, serious acting. Like we want this, this should be as good as anything you see on Netflix because these stories, 
and these uh, issues matter as much as, you know, Gilmore Girls season nine or whatever. So, I mean, I like Gilmore Girls, so that's, you know, that's a compliment, <laughs> that's not a diss. And um, I think, yeah, I think for us, we, we, we both knew what we were doing and didn't know what we were doing. And it was that combination of excitement and let's just make the road by walking. That's how we did it. Do you think people outside of the Bay Area will see magic and the characters will connect with them? I know the Bay Area is very cause driven. It's about the Bay Area, Oakland, yeah. gentrification, other political issues. The show is about four friends. It's about four friends who live together. Three grew up on the block, one just moved to the neighborhood. It's about like 30 something millennials, black, brown and white, who are dealing with their daily lives and also the larger issues that are affecting them. So I think, and we've done screenings across the country and uh, we've done screenings in Boston and New Orleans and Detroit and LA. And does everybody get every inside joke? No, but there are things that hit for everybody. Um, uh, whether it's the politics, it's more, it's about the people and so our job is to make you fall in love with these four characters. Um, it's not, I'm gonna hit you over the head with these issues. It's here are four people dealing with, I mean, who, how is a rent hike not relatable? How is your friend dealing with legal issues not relatable? How is shitty bosses not relatable? These are all like, these are human things. These are American things and um, for us, that's also where the humor comes in, which is we always start with the, the comedy as a way to kind of ease people in to the story. Um, and, and then once you're in, you think it's a nice, uh, silly comedy, then we drop a little bit of knowledge and go from there. You've crowdfunded for it once or twice. We did crowdfunding for both seasons. Um, and yeah, so we did Kickstarter campaigns and then the show is, it's a unique type of production. It's produced by a nonprofit in Oakland called Movement Generation, um, that I work with and, uh, they, uh, have invested and we have raised money through different social issue grants, through filmmaking grants as a way to cobble together the money to make a production that we felt um, was strong enough to, to be worthy of the, of the people that we know and love. And season two comes out? Season two comes out September 10th, um, this Tuesday. I don't know when we are airing this, but uh, if you uh, wanna watch it, the whole show is on thenorthpoleshow.com. So it's on YouTube if you Google the North Pole, but the easiest way is thenorthpoleshow.com. It's executive produced by Rosario Dawson. She's a cameo in this season. Um, Boots Riley, who directed Sorry to Bother You, is in there. Um, and so um, we hope people watch it. We hope people enjoy it. You know, you get to laugh, you get to learn, you get to talk shit. It's just, you know, it's a nice, nice hour of your time. Season three? Season three, I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>